Welcome to Melly, a conversation on Samaritan history by Jonathan Van Arneman, Kyla Brown, Ralph Gantel, and Steffi Gomes. Come hear the Melly and share the Melly. Okay, we are live. Good morning and welcome everyone to the eighth episode of Melly. Um, we are so excited to even reach this part. <laughs> um, and today we have a very special guest. Nonetheless, in case you're just in for the first time, my name is Ralph Pintav and I'm joined with my fellow co-hosts, Jonathan, Steffi and Carla. And today we will be talking about the history of St. Martin um, in ter- uh, as it relates to tourism and the development of tourism on St. Martin. As we know, you know, at present, um, many people are hurting in and wondering when will, you know, more tourists return to the island because you know, at this point it has been all bread and butter for many years. And so I think it's very interesting for us to take a walk back, uh, walk through history as we figure out how did we get to this point? At, you know, how did this great industry, which has um, put food on the tables for many individuals, uh, thousands of people, you know, how did it become a priority for St. Martin and who were the people um, who were involved in shaping this um, island, you know, as a, as, a, as a great destination that it is. And so I would like to introduce my fellow co-host and of course our guest, um, former director of the St. Martin Development Fund. Uh, he has been a manager, a well-known manager for many years and in different um, establishments, hotel establishments, and also a former director of port. Mr. Keith Frank. Good morning, Good morning guys. Um, thank you very much for the introduction and thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And to my other co-hosts, how are you guys doing? And um, I hope you guys are ready for a great conversation today. Yes, yeah. doing well and ready. <laughs> okay, great. So to get straight into it, uh, Mr. Frank, uh, we would, you know, like uh, and appreciate if you could um, tell us a little about a little bit about yourself in terms of um, your your backstory. You know, what led you? I mean, you were born in Curacao, um, of course. Of you're also of Samaritan descent, um, and then you moved here um, at a young age. And so, could you give us a little bit of details about that process? Born on Curacao in. Um... 1955, and uh, my mom um, was not uh, the the Scott family is a well-known family on the island. Uh, my late uncle was the LB, the late LB Scott, and um, uh, I'm what you would call a product economic migration because my mom moved to Curacao. And um, uh, as many St. Martins did in the 50s. And um, uh, she was a professional seamstress. And after a few years in Curacao, in the uh, intercom, today as the Plaza Hotel, uh, it closed, regrettably. And um, I attended Curacao. Uh, and when I graduated, uh, college in night. I moved to St. Martin and uh, at age 19, and I started money um, uh, on St. Martin. Um, uh, prior to my coming permanently to St. Martin, I, I have to tell you, well, I came on vacation 
and it was so sweet and so nice, I decided to stay. But prior to coming to St. Martin in 75, I used to come to St. Martin on what we would call the big school day, July, June, and um, spend time here. And we had, uh, as young people, the responsibility of transporting between Curacao and St. Martin. So my mother would send us up with uh, an envelope. You weren't supposed to open the envelope, but of course the envelope, you know, had cash in it. And then when you're going back down to Curacao, you had to take uh, fried jackfish, you had to take mangoes, and you had to take uh, uh, um back to Curacao. So uh, we were couriers from an early age. Um, after spending two months on uh, an extended vacation, um, I applied for uh, first place I applied is Winneranis Bank and the Bank of Nova Scotia. Didn't hear from them. And I applied at uh, Mullet and I actually received an introduction from my late cousin, Mervyn Scott, who was the publisher and editor of the New Age newspaper. He introduced me uh, which letter I still have, by the way, Ralph, you know, I, I I like keeping those old things. And he introduced me to the then vice president of personnel and development, uh, uh, Mr. Lou Peters. And the first question that Lou Peters asked me from over the rim of his glasses was, who you fought? And I explained to him who my mom was, et cetera, et cetera. And that was a, a very important question in those days because who you fought determined how you would perform, how you would assimilate, and what kind of manners you had. So I was hired right away. My rate of pay was $1 per hour. And I started to train at the front desk to uh, uh, become a night auditor. Night auditors work from 11 to 7 a.m., 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And I um, went through the training and then my rate of pay moved from, I think, $70 to $85 a week plus service charge. And I did the function of night audit, uh, cashier, telephone operator. And I think after one year became an assistant manager. We had a battalion of assistant managers at Mullet because Mullet had 622 rooms and about five assistant managers. And our job was basically to supervise the employees in the front office, reservations, transportation, element, and uh, we were the troubleshooters. So any guest complaint would come to us and we would resolve the problem. After doing that job as a system manager for four years, I saw an ad in the New Age newspaper for a personnel manager. And Al Wadi at that time took over from Lou Peters as director of personnel. And I called Al and I said, Al, I'm interested in that job. Al said, I don't want a problem with Mike Ferrier because Mike Ferrier was my supervisor. So why don't you discuss it with Mike first? And um, I have a feeling Mike is not gonna want to let you. So anyway, I discussed it with Mike 
sent in my application and I became the personnel manager of Mullet. I was director of personnel. And Al's idea was the amount of work that the personnel had had to be shared to people. So I was responsible for all the recruitment, disciplinary procedures, and Al basically spent time in development and government relations. A job for about uh, a, a year. Al Wati then resigned and I became the personnel. Um, that period of time was a very crucial time in the history of St. Martin because in 1979, Al negotiated with the union when with our Federation of Labor. And at that time, under the management directorship presidency of Rene The Mullet Collective Labor negotiated was, was a milestone in hospitality history on St. Martin because a number of rules that were engaged were somewhat contrary to normal labor procedure. For example, it worked until 11 p.m. Um, and you came to work back the following day at 7 a.m. Um, the union negotiated that you should get what is called the uh, short premium. You should wait four hours at overtime rate because you did not get sufficient rest between 11 and 7. Uh, negotiated some other very, very crucial uh, uh, points in the labor history of St. Martin. Um, overtime rate of pay, um, um, acting assignment. If you are performing a job, you should be paid accordingly. Um, and I consider that Rene, together with the very competent shop stewards that he trained at Lut, um, set the labor history tone on St. Martin. Thereafter, I'll add again in the newspaper, I forgot to mention that in 1980, Mullet Bay closed due to um, um, cash flow problems. And it was closed for a number of months. And myself, Mike Ferrier, conducted the reopening negotiations with the union, Chase Manhattan Bank. Sent, we received a loan of uh, $5 million and um, we were able to reopen the hotel's operations. And I saw an added newspaper, again, the uh, New Age newspaper, looking for a general management. We had an uh, exclusive relationship with the law firm of Gibson Duncan. And the only thing they said, PO Box 200, and I knew it was the PO Box of the law firm. So I called my dear friend, Roland Duncan, and I said, which hotel is it? And he said, Frank, it's a summit hotel, but I doubt very much if you would, um, you would stick to that because it's too small for you. You're coming from 600 rooms. Um, I said, Roland, I'm interested. So I sent in an application. I got the job as general manager of the summit. And I worked there from uh, 1981 until 1986. Uh, the Summit Hotel uh, is one of the first condo hotels following Monday. And uh, regrettably, it passed through Hurricane Lewis quite well. But Irma uh, was a bit larger 
with a lot more weight and it destroyed this plywood cottage style country hotel and flattened it. So the summit no longer exists. Um, after spending five years at the summit, I then was invited to go to Bel Air where I spent two years as general manager. After Bel Air, I was invited to go to Don Beach where I spent three years as general manager. Then uh, Ambassador Hu Shang Ansari invited me to come back to Mullet Bay as general manager and I rejoined in 1991 until 1994 as general manager. Between 94 and 2005, I had my own consulting company and I did different assignments, different startups. Um, and in 2005, I was invited to the harbor where I occupied the position of managing director for the St. Martin Ports Authority. And then in 2009, we restructured the company and created a three-headed management team and merged all the companies in one holding. So myself, Mark Mingo, Tan Van Colton formed the management team and I spent six years at the harbor. And in 2011, I asked with the St. Martin Development Fund in 2012 until very recently, December 2019. In between all those assignments, um, I was in 82 vice president together with Mike Ferrier of the St. Martin Hotel Association. I rendered this in various situations, the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club, um, uh, rendered service as the chairman of the uh, royal visits to St. Martin over the last uh, number of years, um, but did quite a number of community uh, services um, on the island of St. Martin. Um, before, before we move on, um, I'm wondering if you could touch a little bit on um, you know, last, last week when we were talking to, to Mr. Marcel Gums, he, he spoke of Mullet Bay um, not only as a pioneer in terms of, you know, the sheer magnitude of the hotel, but also in terms of the training program and the footing that it allowed for many locals to get in the job market. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what the training program was like at the Mullet Bay Hotel. Uh, Jonathan, I, I listened to Marcel and I want to, um, again, mention, um, uh, a name that I think needs to be engraved in the history of Smart. The, uh, the director of personnel at the time, vice president. Lou basically had the responsibility of ingraining, if I could use that word, this huge um, company um, uh, that would have employed over 1,200 people into the community of St. Martin. So you can imagine that Mullet Bay was like Google moving into St. Martin. Uh, Lou did a lot of development training. Um, Lou would jump in his Volkswagen Jeep at that time, drive to Grand Cars, drive up in front of the Larmony house and say, Celine, do you want to work? Celine would say, yeah. Put on your clothes, jump in the car and Lou Peters in that fashion in the 1970s, recruited people 
from various neighborhoods. French Quarter, as Marcel rightfully mentioned, was one of those areas that he recruited a number of people um, and took them directly to work and basically trained people. People got training on the job in those days. If I take myself as an example, um, I did what you would call MAVO and I did HAVO. So I had no formal hotel education. So everything I learned, I learned on the job. Um, so Mullet, in training people on the job, um, started in the late 80s a Mullet Bay Training Institute. And Mullet trained its staff um, uh, in, in finer things about, uh, about service. And the Training Institute, the late Claude Wati said to uh, uh, Ambassador Ansari, why don't you close your training institute and open a school and serve the entire island of St. Martin? That's how the University of St. Martin was born. It was born from a vision from Claude Wati together with Hu Shang Ansari. And Hu Shang closed his Mullet Bay Institute and was the man in the United States together with luminaries like Henry Kissinger um, that spoke to Johnson and Wales and Johnson and Wales dispatched a number of his professors and instructors to St. Martin. And the University of St. Martin started at, as a hospitality training school to start with. So where people were able to do their first training or education in hospitality and then move on to Rhode Island to, to obtain Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts in hospitality. But most all hotels train the staff on the job. And in those days, uh, Jonathan, you have to realize that um, say 500 and something permanent employees at Mullet um, would be working permanently 12 months in a year. And then an additional 600 or so were hired between all the companies, the Mullet Bay Casino, the Holiday Car Rental, Car Rents Rye Hotel and Mullet Bay. They would be hired for a period of five to six months. And again, those people coming into work had to be trained on the job quickly so they could assume their responsibilities. So most training on the island prior to the arrival of the Mullet Bay Institute and the University of St. Martin happened on the job. And in that same breath, one of my um, um, pet conversation uh, pieces is that 80% of the labor force in especially Mullet Bay consisted of St. Martinus, Antillians, and French St. Martinus. And I, I, I say consisted of not only in um, um, frontline jobs or backline jobs, but all the way up in management. Um, uh, a number of people in St. Martin may not remember, may not know that Mike Ferrier the owner of Napa uh, was general manager of Mullet. 
Prior to that, he was a resident manager of Mullet. Michael has no formal hotel education. Actually, Michael studied at the only car, car management school in Holland, and he ended up in the hotel business. Um, every single restaurant in Mullet Bay was managed by a St. Martina. Um, in the housekeeping department, the, the two executive housekeepers or two assistant executive housekeepers were Arlene Patterson and Julian Hughes, as an example, both Antillians. So when I look at that period of time and I see how many Antillians occupied management and leading positions in the largest business on St. Martin, and I look at today, where we have a lot more people that have followed hospitality management schooling in Holland and in the United States, I ask myself, how come a good number of our people are not occupying key positions in the hospitality industry? So in terms of your age and the age I'm speaking about, I'm speaking about the span of 38 years. In 38 years, we have developed people in hospitality, and yet after 38 years, these people don't occupy leading positions in um, the hospitality industry in St. Martin. And I'm saying that in the 70s and 80s, Antillians occupied positions in these establishments without the formal educations that people today have. So it's, it's, it's a very key item for, 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 for thinking. And I just want to interject maybe get your opinion on that. And it's to ask yourself, okay, so St. Martin's are now receiving these degrees. Do you think that, and I'm sure it's going to be a combination, but it, it, that there aren't enough pull factors to bring these students back to St. Martin? or there is a certain climate here that is pushing them away? I think it's a combination of two things, actually three things. I think that the public sector has a responsibility when it disburses in excess of 40% of its national budget towards education. It has a responsibility in knowing when um, Sylvie is gonna finish her studies and when uh, the country knows that Sylvie is gonna finish her studies in 2024, that by 2022, we need to start making arrangements for Sylvie to return. We need to clear space for Sylvie. Um, I was a member of the um, scholarship committee for a few years. And I oftentimes ask if we know where our students are, how they're performing, we know how many people are studying hospitality. That link from the public sector education department to the private sector, I think over the years has been absent and we have not been making preparations for our people to quote unquote return. Um, the second item is the private sector, not all of them, but a number of them, realizing a licensed fair um, attitude in us 
takes advantage of the situation and basically may turn around and want else to manage their restaurant um, um, without regard for they may be uh, uh, to fill the position. The third item is that um, I know uh, a young lady by the name of Rosemary Romeo um, has two master's degree and Disney Resort in Florida. And you know that to be able to work at Disney, you better be good. Then I know someone else that's the director of operations of uh, uh, a Marriott Hotel in Philadelphia. The, the guy is from St. Martin, married, kids. Um, what did we do to entice Motley uh, to return back to St. Martin and occupy a position of general manager? And I could identify in Holland in the United States a number of these people. And the question is, did the country really want them? In 1986, it's a separate status. The year prior, in 85 and in 84, had a, a group of travel to the United States and to Holland with one goal, to bring back qualified groups to Aruba, to help Aruba after its separate status. Um, I often say that if you were to drive from starting from, not drive, walk from Tropicana Casino and go all the way to Puerto Cupuco. And we have a meeting the following day after your walk. And you tell me the number of St. Martiners or Antillians walking in all those establishments would probably be very shocked. And the question is, what happened from 1980 to 2020. Have we all become incompetent? Have we all become qualified that we're not um, occupying simple, 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 simple jobs? Or is it so that a number of people are available to work? You know, I think that uh, years ago, the Minister of Finance, Richard Gibson, made a strong statement. He said that, he, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing, he said that the St. Martina needs to be integrated by evolution or revolution. And of course, people, when he said, he used the word revolution, people saw uh, AK-4, but Basically, um, that that Gibson made was not new in history. In 1984, Badwati said the same thing. He said, look, train the people, give them more money, and them up in more positions of responsibility. Um, what has happened is that the industry grew so fast, we did not stop and, and take stock and make a plan of people really in more responsible positions in the industry. Thank you. Uh, one of my questions for you is, um, sorry, repeat. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, I'm, I'm, I'm asking if I answered the question. 
Yes, extensively. <laughs> and several others. Yeah, um, he raised a lot of I, I see Ralph and Steffi have questions. I don't want to be selfish. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, it kind of stuck on my end, so I didn't. My bad. Um, but my question was, as far as St. Martin as a tourism destination, um, from those early years, you know, um, what is it that made St. Martin special in your in your view? Why why became St. Martin? And I would add to Ralph's question and what made St. Martin special also, uh, how was, okay, so how, what made St. Martin special and how was that marketed? Because I know from stories that marketing uh, as a tourist destination and your history is a part of that. Uh, very good question. Um, one of, two of my, my expertise when I was in the hotel business was uh, I really, really enjoyed the position of a uh, director of personnel. Um, I think any, any um, manager need to be able to understand human resource management before going into management. It's a job that I always said I would go back to tomorrow. Um, and in saying that, um, the second item that I specialized in is filling beds, being that filling hotels, filling rooms. Um, in those days, we had a slogan. In the 70s, we had a slogan that was the 10 good reasons to visit St. Martin. The late Bob Dubork, who used to manage DB or Little Bay Hotel, we used to go traveling quite often for we would get free tickets from American Airlines and we would go to New York and we would visit travel agents with brochures in our Samsonite suitcases um, simply because you can imagine that there was no, no Facebook, there was no Twitter, no there was no internet. You had to do face-to-face -face selling and advertising to get people enticed to come to St. Martin. That is what Claude Watty, Sam Hazel, and people like them, La Bega, did in the olden days. They basically entertained people, um, dished out the St. Martin hospitality, and these people went back and spoke to other people who then uh, came to St. Martin, and that created a repeat flow of visitors to St. Martin. We had a representation company called Mallory Factor in the 70s and early 80s. Mallory Factor probably had a budget of maybe $30,000. I remember in 1988, when I was general manager of the, of the Dog Beach Hotel, my marketing budget was $240,000. And the entire tourism budget of St. Martin was under $200,000. So my hotel had a larger marketing budget than the marketing budget of the government of St. Martin, simply because St. Martin took the position, we're already developed, we're very popular, especially on the Eastern coast of the United States. So um, we don't need to put more money into marketing the destination. Um, some of our most strongest attributes then and sometimes I say now to a lesser degree, is the fact that St. Martin is shared by 
two totally different administrations. You have a little bit of French and a little bit of quote unquote Dutch. We have used that attribute well over the years because to an American or even a European traveler, that is a unique attribute. The Dominican Republic and Haiti are not going to go to a tourism show and say to Santo Domingo and Haiti, we share one island, but St. Martin is unique. I remember going to trade shows and saying that when you cross from the northern side to go to the southern side, the only immigration official you will, you will meet would be grazing goats on the roadside. The fact that you're able to cross over to quote unquote, a different country, a total different administration with a total different architecture, with an attribute of so many delightful restaurants is absolutely unique. So we have in the beginning, we were kind of leery as an island and using that attribute and promotion because some politicians said, you know, you're going to be sending business to the French side and we don't want to send the business to the French side, da, 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 da. Today, we have changed that marketing strategy and we're basically even saying, if you come to St. Martin, you can go to St. Bart's, you can go to Anguilla, you can go to Saban, you can go to Stacia. So we, we are using the regionality of St. Martin as a, as a marketing strength. But I go back to good old... Um, Clem LaBega, Sam Hazel, Claude Watty, just to name a few, Julian Connor, to name, to, 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 to name him, because he was a fantastic uh, director of tourism, a fantastic promotional man. Um, it was what I would call the high touch syndrome. So hosting people, giving that truly St. Martin friendly hospitality that we have uh, we have it in all our license plates and we don't realize how important it was and how important it is to call yourself the, the actual friendly island. Um, Carla, when Carla was writing um, uh, one of the several uh, pieces that she wrote, she studied the life of um, um, Harry Belafonte. I honestly knew of Harry Belafonte, but I did not know Harry's background. And how did I know of Harry Belafonte? Harry Belafonte for a number of years owned a house in St. Martin. The house was located in um, French lowlands. Today, I say St. Martin took for granted that Harry Belafonte made St. Martin his home, his home, and Harry would play ballot with guys like Leo Friday, Roland Duncan, Richard Gibson, Raul Illich. And we just took the fact that Harry was Harry as being something normal. We considered it very normal that Diana Ross would walk down Front Street and none of us would ask her for an autograph. We would consider it very normal that, that uh, Bob Marley was on Front Street and we wouldn't bother him. So St. Martin had a, um, a very, very friendly, accepting attitude. But today I turn around and say, boy, 
you know, we, sh we should have used the fact that Harry made St. Martin his home as a promotional piece. And regrettably at, at Harry's age today, he no longer comes to St. Martin, but you know, here, here is a, a, a black American that made significant historical impact in Calypso. And Harry was in St. Martin and for us it was like, yeah, you know, but we promoted St. Martin um, word of mouth strongly um, in the in the late 80s, early 90s, I promoted St. Martin strongly and um, and uh, with advertising dollars in Canada and in Europe. And uh, Europe, you have to understand, it takes you at least a year before you could forge an agreement with a German, Swiss, Austrian uh, operator. But Don Beach was the recipient of many European tourists simply because of its tropical nature. And then the business I generated at uh, 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 Don Beach from the Canadian market, I took to Mullet and Mullet was probably the largest recipient together with uh, Great Bay of um, um, Canadian tourists. Today, regrettably, the competition that is out there, they spend millions and millions of dollars in promotion and we are not in the business of promoting millions and millions of dollars. And that I think is critically important is if we were to promote with millions and millions of dollars, we turn around and look behind us, we don't have to. So uh, if we take just uh, hotels on the island, uh, Maho, Maho, Maho has a tremendous plant but is a all-inclusive hotel. Then you will turn around and look at, at Simpson Bay Beach, which is the second largest hotel. And Simpson Bay Beach is totally timeshare. It may only have an inventory of rooms available to sign a contract with a travel wholesaler that would fill those rooms. So the inventory of rooms has changed from 1984, 85 from 3,200 hotel rooms, it has dwindled down to an, a few hotels that are predominantly timeshare. And now of course, Maho with, a, with 600 and something rooms become all inclusive. So uh, some study read as to what inventory do we have? Um, uh, one of the other leading on the island, the, the uh, Oyster Bay Hotel, is also fully timeshare. So you need, you need to realize that if you're fully timeshare, you cannot go to, uh, as we did to Venezuela, and charter planes to bring, because you, you're not guaranteed that you would have all the rooms available. I wanted to go back uh, to the topic of, of tourism marketing and of uh, the offer, uh, the, 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 yeah, the touristic offer of St. Martin. My first question was about the slogan, the friendly island. If you could tell us more about like where does that slogan come from and what did it mean and what does it mean today maybe? And also uh, about the offer. So like in many Caribbean islands, um, our hot hotels are mainly beachfront hotels. 
And uh, so basically my question is, where does that model of the beachfront hotel with many stories uh, would come from? And um, why is it so generalized? Why? Because my feeling is that many hotels that were constru constructed in the same era are basically more or less uh, the same in their format of being near a beach, uh, having a large pool, and having many stories. Very interesting question, Sylvie. Uh, um, if I if I go back in history and say, Mark, the Mullet Bay architecture and style of construction had it that no rooms, no were actually on the beach. The rooms to the beach were uh, from building 61 to 66, and you had to walk across the golf course to get to the beach. And the only suites that were actually on the beach were was building 90, and it had 10, 10 suites in it, 10 large suites. Building 90 was at the end of the beach on a cliff, and it overlooked the beach. Um, a number of other hotels, uh, similar to the beach with 155 rooms, had no rooms on the beach. So um, the 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 main the main item in the 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 the, the hotel that came after Don Beach as well also had no rooms directly on. But a number of these hotels were not built to be hotels. They were built to be condos, meaning that mullet, every single room in mullet was sold to a private owner. A single room in the Don Beach was sold to, to owners. The same for the Summit Hotel, the same for Grand Cross Beach Club, um, the same for what used to be the St. Martin Beach Club close to Holland House in Phillipsburg, there were hotels. And the concept of the condo hotel is, I'm gonna sell it to you. And as a developer, able to recoup my investment, I don't have to wait for 20 years in renting hotel rooms out. That model of condo development changed in the early 90s to timeshare. The developer said, hey, looking at the cooperation on St. Martin, the condo model um, is going to be superseded a, a newer model called timeshare. And Dr. Martin Fleetman um, um, bought the timeshare model to St. Martin, just passed away uh, last year. And Mr. Fleetman was the the developer of the so-called Pelican or Simpson Bay Resort as we know it today. Again, the model is I'm going to sell 52 slices or 50 slices of stays in one room, investment quickly, and consequently, um, after I recoup my investment, the owners of the timeshare have to run the place themselves. So we've had two models that dominated in St. Martin over the last four decades, condiment and timeshare development. So the, 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 the fact that someone did not build a hotel, Sylvie, on Peak Paradise, that, that, that basically um, 
um, is a eco resort, it's not on the beach, did not take place in St. Martin because, in my opinion, the profitability of such a move. You know, if you if you are in the hotel business and you have a room that has a lagoon view or an ocean view, you can command more money for that room indeed. But if you have a room that is set in those days and maybe even now in a mountain and it has a jungle view, um, you may not be able to command that, that, that tariff. Because in the European market and the American market, having an ocean view is a premium. One of the hotels that I managed that had 72 or that has 72 suites that face the, the ocean is the Bel Air Hotel. The rates we commanded in 1986 for those rooms were 300 and $400 a night because there were suites and they all faced the ocean. Uh, another hotel, for example, would have been um, Saint faced the beach, Saint Martin Beach, not, not uh, Le Grand Saint Martin faced the beach. Uh, there weren't too many hotels inland. Um, most hotels were located close close to water. What was the name of that hotel in um, Defiance again? Uh, the Defiance Hotel actually. Um, uh, you mean the Princess Quarter Hotel or Defiance? There was a hotel in Defiance called Princess. So as you're going up the hill to Defiance, yeah. on the yeah. left-hand side, in the, in the 50s, 60s, there was a hotel called Princess Quad Hotel. Um, it closed a number of years ago. But uh, historically, that was the site uh, for, the, for an intended hotel school that never materialized. And uh, the government of Samark commissioned several um, uh, consultant reports as to making it into a viable running hotel school, but it never happened. And uh, we spoke a lot about, you know, um, the, well, the hotel industry, um, but what about the cruise industry? At what point did that really start popping up? And what can you say about the difference in um, the quality of tourists in terms, in terms of spending power um, and influence on the island? Um, the, the, uh, there's one point I, I just want to go. I have to apologize to Ms. Gomes. Sorry, I have to apologize to you. I didn't answer the question as to the license plate and the friendly island. Yes, that's correct. Being, being affixed to, to license plates happened before my time. Um, safely say without going to my archives of uh. uh information that it was a true statement in that St. Martin Ners, French and Dutch side were truly friendly. Uh, it was a risk undertaking. It's a risky undertaking uh, using a slogan and backing it up by consistent training of your people. Uh, it worked, you know, it worked. Um, uh, same the friendly island uh, has been a slogan that has been around for five decades. So before we move to the cruise industry question, we have a question from Facebook. I believe that St. Martin can integrate and target quality tourists over quality. 
back in the day, St. Martin was the same parts of the Caribbean, and Martin recaptured this. Move from the model of um, uh, mass that we have now, we would need a revolution, a revolution in training and development, revolution in changing of attitudes, and a revolution of, 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 of raising that service bar level to a higher level. You know, um, we, all of us go through on a daily basis and uh, all of us are familiar with the waitress or the waiter that comes over and says, what are you guys having? And I often say, but why do they always say, none of us with a service industry background have come up with a, something else that they can say in approaching the table. So I don't think that St. Martin had a standard of quality service similar to what St. Bart's has today. Um, St. Martin had a standard of service and accommodations and availability of superb restaurants. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that it could have equaled uh, 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 St. Bart's, South of France, Ibiza, Greek islands, et cetera, et cetera, simply because the service is not there. I think we attracted a high level of clientele in the 70s and 80s simply because of those attributes and St. Martin was a new product. It was brand new. And again, you know, which island in the Caribbean could boast a capital, uh, 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 a town in the, um, in the north with, at the time, greater than 30 excellent French restaurants and who in the Caribbean could boast of having a grand cause with so many, so many good restaurants. And even to Phyllisburg, Phyllisburg was loved to 15 excellent restaurants. So to an American tourist in those days, St. Martin with the beach, with the casino was an excellent destination. And yes, in those people that came to St. Martin had more money and we full well know that their children that came after do not, do not want to be a environment that is mass tourism. So that's why an island like St. Bart's, an island like Anguilla would end up standing out because the person that has money wants a little bit of more islandish. If that wasn't the case, they could have gone to Las Vegas in Miami Beach for all I care. So um, I think strongly that if you follow the trend, the trend of the affluent tourists are to destinations that are hideaway destinations. Uh, Virgin, Virgin, British Virgin, Virgin um, Islands, um, uh, St. Lucia to some degree, um, even to the dominant republic, attract highest price client, unless that client is going to go to a Casa de Campo or going to rent a villa somewhere. So publish as a country, as a destination, what is it we want to be? 
what is it we want? And um, we made a choice uh, in 2001 that we were gonna go in the cruise industry as a second pillar. Uh, I say 2001 in that that is when the, the first cruise fair was completed. And the first cruise fair was able to accommodate um, two ships or four ships. We basically built the second cruise fair in 2009 um, and commissioned it. And the second cruise fair was specifically built according to the uh, specifications of the mega ships the, the, that the Royal Caribbean was bringing on the market. So as we were designing the pier, we were in communication with Royal Caribbean and Royal Caribbean would say, well, uh, it needs to be two feet taller. It needs to, the concrete needs to be this strength, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a tremendous communication before the pier was completed. St. Martin went from a sleepy 400,000 tourists cruise tourists to in excess of two cruise passengers in the period of no time. And the question is, why? Why, why were the cruise lines um, intent interested in putting St. Martin in its itinerary? Again, St. Martin has some absolutely unique attributes to cruise passengers. Um, you take, for example, the fact that are a true duty-free destination. Duty-free destination in the sense that and the bottle of vodka because it was imported without to put any import duty on it. So that to the crew members of the cruise ships and the cruise passenger is an attractive, um, um, to put it that way. I back Ms. Gums to the same situation of French, Dutch. Those passengers, that's very, that you have uh, uh, two sides. For example, at one time in our, in our cruise history, it was the hottest seller among cab drivers. Aryan Beach is no longer the hottest seller. Phyllisburg Beach has become the hottest seller. You know why? they could walk from the cruise ship walk from the cruise ship to phyllisburg and go on the beach the second hottest seller is the sunset why because we have promoted to social media plane watching plane watching has become a tremendous in 19 in 1984 the same peters who i mentioned before uh, sorry, not Lou Peters. Will Johnson mentioned that tourist development should be at the detriment of the resident. Resident needs to be able to participate and generate um, benefit from the tourism boom that a destination is um, is experiencing. One destination that does that well. A few destinations do that. Cayman Island, Bermuda, where the Bermudans and the Caymanians have achieved a significant wealth because of the, the financial industry they have and the tourism industry. Uh, we need to ask ourselves 
if St. Martin, the southern side, have the carrying capacity that we have been experiencing prior to the pandemic and prior to Earth. Meaning, can this island safely, safely, responsibly, and with enjoyment in mind for these tourists to accommodate 2 million cruise passengers per year? Um, uh, Mr. Gums mentioned last week, for example, that it is unacceptable that a tour bus would go to the Sunset Beach, top tourists that were doing plane watching, and requires a police escort to airport area to the cruise pair so the cruise passengers don't miss the, um, the uh, cruise ship. Uh, the police escort was necessary. Why? Because the traffic between the airport and Phyllisburg after three o'clock is just plain impossible. So the question comes in, is the carrying capacity of St. Martin, has it reached its peak? Do we need to examine that? Um, you know, and the, the answer is absolutely yes. You know, St. Martin can't carry it. Someone says, we need to develop Mullet Bay and a 400 room hotel. Well, I'm of the opinion that St. Martin can handle 400 rooms. With 400 rooms, you're going to need maybe 200 rental cars, and uh, you're going to need an additional adult at Juliana Airport. And the question is, um, what kind of uh, uh, visitor experience are we going to have visitor go through? And we forgot we forgot about the supply of labor to work in the 400 rooms. We forgot about housing that we don't have sufficient inventory right now. Um, um, if we have to import some additional labor, where are they gonna live, et cetera, et cetera. I think in the situation that we're at, uh, especially because the pandemic is on, is a time Minister of uh, Economic Affairs should convene a summit um, similar as done by Dennis Richardson in 1995, where the various different groups, uh, taxi association, uh, bus, bus uh, companies, hotel managers, sit around the table, discuss these issues, medium-term and long-term plan, and actually stick to the commitment. Uh, you may know that we already have tourism master plans that were written. They're sitting uh, in, in well-maintained libraries. And uh, pulling these reports out and seeing what recommendations were made many years ago that can be implemented. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm someone that cares for, um, if we're claiming that we're booming in cruise and we're booming in, in stayover tourists, we need to be able to be in our hearts that the St. Martina is benefiting from this boom. And regrettably today, we can't say that, you know? Um, that's my take. Um, I th so I had a question and I think you, you answered it. Um, I mean, I really wanted to hear your opinion as someone who has been in the tourism industry for so long. Um, 
how you see the viability and the sustainability of the tourism industry. And I think that you, you pretty much touched on everything that I was curious about in terms of since Martin moving forward. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk of um, uh, diversification of the economy um, and us needing more than one pillar. You know, they say that tourism is really not gonna cut it if that's our only pillar. You know, it's over 80% of our GDP and it's proven to be um, risky, you know, risky in terms of hurricanes, in terms of pandemics, in terms of just so many external shocks that can affect um, people coming to the island. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, like what does a turn away from tourism towards another industry look like in your book? Um, and do you have any opinion on what, you know, another industry for St. Martin might be? Jonathan, you hit the nail right in the head. Because in preparation for um, this chat we were going to have, I went into my archives that Carla and uh, Ralph Cantava are very familiar with. And I found um, some newspaper clippings that are very historical. I mean, I have in front of me a Winwood Island's opinion, Winwood Island's news day from 1985. That's 35 years ago. Um, and where Dr. Claude Wati stated on the front page, tourists complain of rat and roaches in hotels. That was the headline. But when you go into the interview that Fabian Babijo had with uh, Dr. Wati at the time, um, the question posed by Fabian was, in one of your speeches some time ago, you said that now was the time to start diversification of the island's economy. How is this effort going on? I remind you that this is 35 years ago. Claude said, well, when I spoke of diversification, I wasn't speaking of agriculture and all of that. I need to put between parentheses that agriculture today is the buzzword. Parliament has convened meetings to discuss agriculture and self-sufficiency in food. If you just look at the agriculture, agricultural islands, you see that it has dropped. He's right. St. Kitts, for example, moved to agriculture to tourism. It is now lagging behind tourism, which is now the number one supplier of foreign exchange and job opportunities. I spoke of diversifying in the sense of making St. Martin a financial center, the offshore business, banking, the so-called Hong Kong business. And Jonathan, in response to your question, um, definitely we need to seriously study diversification. I have a friend, Arturo Butte, who constantly speaks about diversification. We have conducted studies, the SER, the, the various economic committees have come up with ideas on diversification. And believe you, I, it needs not be a factory that's producing uniforms, but there's so many different business models of diversification that we could um, get into. And the one attribute that St. Martin has is the fact that we are a duty-free destination. In other words, 
The ship arrives in Point Blanche. The ship offloads the containers. There's absolutely no duty except port fees and goods. You order from Amazon.com, the Diana, you go on Tuesday and Thursday, you pick up your box. You have to not pay duties. Um, you pay those shipping fees. You pay the shipping fees, of course. And you would do with any other shipping. Um, a friend says, he envisions a, a team of salespeople would visit um, Amazon that St. Martin could be looked at as a, as a transition point for Amazon.com to other Caribbean destinations. What is wrong in FedEx establishing a hub on St. Martin? Um, the financial sector that Dr. Wong mentioned about has been kidnapped by Holland. Very strong statement. Um, Holland has become a very financial center for the offshore market. You know that uh, companies such as Google, Amazon.com have their head offices in, 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 in Holland because of the benefits it brings with it. Um, we do have space for the, the, the um, financial center business banking Dr. Wadi spoke about. But again, my reason for quoting him is because this was 25 years ago in terms of diversification. If I can pose the last question, because we've already been an hour now, um, and it's something that you touched on throughout this whole talk, and that's the fact that recognizing tourism is important within our economy. Um, recognizing that there were multiple attempts at the, let's say, post-secondary level to educate youngsters about tourism. Uh, and so my final question is more about um, us as singers and, and our labor force itself and our perspective on what it means to work with the tourism industry. Because I think you brought up an interesting point that, yes, now a lot of young St. Martiners are going away studying uh, hospitality industry, but and, and coming back with a degree. Uh, and I think their perspective today of where they should be uh, within the tourism sector within St. Martin is starkly different from where you, Auntie, uh, said that you should be within this tourism sector. So my question is more, uh, yeah, one, how have we seen that tourism remains out of reach, out of all levelization? Because I think there's a reason why graduate at 18, uh, we go away to get a degree and expect to come back in an assistant manager position or whatever, you know? We are not, uh, we don't have this ingrained in us from any time before we see tourists, but our education systems, nowhere within any of the schools, uh, or I don't wanna say any because I use Sundial, uh, does care towards, you know, making the chefs and etc. But no one turns our perspective towards tourism because if I, think this sounds like a ramble, but locals have a very negative connotation of tourism and working in the tourism industry. And that changed and how has it remained 
Do you think it's because it's remained out of our schooling system? Uh, we see it as something freaking and it's not for us. We are only for the top level positions or working in government or etc. Because I think that there's a huge disconnect between saying that this is your uh, forms your largest economic uh, sector, but look at all of your social systems uh, and what do your social systems and educational systems speak from, from when you're already mature as a young person, because that's when we start to get our ideas of in society, what roles you want to take and what these industries mean to us. Uh, interesting um, question. Um, I, I, I think I, it's two-way street in the sense that um, we must, now we need to, we must include in curriculums tourism. The fact that we have a is something to applaud. It's had graduation recently. Um, the fact that Sundial School um, produces um, people for hospitality um, is good. I am not either of the two schools also have a job training for students studying the different streams. Consider that critically important. What I consider also important is that a number of our um, entrepreneurs, business owners, need to actively um, realize that if they do not integrate the local in the working environment, eventually there will be a huge problem. In the same breath, I think it's very important that a number of us actually speak the total fruit when we do speak because some of us would turn around and speak it quietly and i know business owners that would definitely not go on record publicly in saying it and it boils down to productivity Are foreign um workers more productive than our, our own people you know, productivity in, in, in any business is critically important. And you would have a number of people in the contracting world, construction, uh, restaurant, and they would compare the productivity of uh, a Keith Franca from uh, Cahill to um, um, this dude that's from San Pedro de Macorís. And the guy from San Pedro de Macorís runs faster and produces more. I think it's an educational thing where we need to train our people in realizing that productivity and performance means a lot. Um, um, you would go to a, a, a country like um, um, uh, Dubai and you say, you say to the waiter, may I have a glass of orange juice, please? And if you see the urgency that this young man places in getting that glass of orange juice back to your table, you go like, wow, and you experience that in Bali. And the question is, can that Bali mentality of work be bought over to St. Martin, yes or no? So I think it's a combination of a number of things. And I think that um, I wanna give you a little um, <laughs> quote from, from Will Johnson. He said in 1990, Progress 
cannot be measured in quantity of tourist dollars, but rather in the quality of life of the citizens. The quality of life today is far from what it used to be back in the 50s. The man hit the nail right in the head, 1990. And the, head, the headline of the article uh, was, tourism didn't benefit the masses. And the question also asked in the Caribbean Week article, what price progress? And the second, uh, the third headline in the article was, people on St. Martin were happier in the old days. Now, you know that Will Johnson is an, is an is a historian and he lived and worked on St. Martin. And um, uh, these articles that he wrote and these opinions he expressed, I think um, when you look at it today, you ask yourself, well, you know, if, if we've been saying that for years, why wasn't anything done about it? If I may, um, in, in the last um, um, 34 years, if I, if I, if I look back at, at living and working at St. Martin, there's some sensational people that I've worked with. Um, I, I, I believe firm, and that's what it is, that tourism is all about people. If you don't have a team rendering to a, a one guest, the service experience of that one guest would be a disaster. Made the work in synchrony, synchronization with the maintenance man, the front desk girl to do what she's supposed to. All of us need to be conducting that, that, that entire show. Uh, just the other day, I had a conversation from Al Wadi. And I said, Al, uh, I have three standing in the days we were in the hospitality sector, and I want to bounce these to you and see if you agree. I said Radford Richardson, Edwin Hockey Phillips, and Joe Brooks from, from Phillipsburg. Uh, Joe Brooks, I'll pass on, but Joe Brooks was the head houseman of housekeeping at Mullet Bay. Unique individual, hardworking, dedicated, and today in 2020, Will Brooks on St. Martin. Naki, Edwin Phillips from Middle Region, was a security guard. He worked basically security, and we had um, over the years about 30 to 35 security guards. And Naki was the only security guard that was licensed to carry a firearm. Naki, in addition, was the unofficial body, if you may, of uh, a Clem, a Claude, and you know, he would leave Mullet after working the midnight shift at seven in the morning, go to Phillipsburg, go to the post office, pick up the mail from Mullet Bay, bring mail back to Mullet Bay, and um, at 11, he would leave Mullet Bay and go home and take after taking the same routine again, working from 11 in the night until 7. Naki, when Mullet closed with Hurricane Lewis in 95, 
Naki continued rendering service and patrolling the property, etc., etc. That level of dedication, that level of commitment that a man like Naki had, you rarely find it in St. Martin today. You know, things have changed. I said to Al Radford Richardson, an Anguillian, and I mentioned that in the 80s, people from Anguilla, people from St. Kitts, people from Nevis were employed directly after people from French St. Martin. So first Dutch, then um, uh, Antillians, Curacao, um, um, and then people from Anguilla, people from Nevis. Most of the excellent housekeeping staff come from St. Kitts and come from Nevis. Radford was the paymaster at Mullet Bay. For excess of Radford prepared um, the payroll. And the payroll, not like uh, Carla's custom of, of being paid monthly, or I am a customer of being paid. The payroll in Mullet for 1,200 people used to be paid every Thursday. Mullet had its own bank, was called Chase Manhattan Bank. I said to Al, can you imagine that this man by hand with a staff of two would write the payroll for 1,200 people and it had to be ready on Thursday morning by hand. The checks had to be wrote by hand and then the employees would go to the Chase Manhattan Bank and you see this long line of people. So most businesses no longer put payroll every week, you know, every two weeks and monthly preferably. Um, the reason I mentioned those three names is because they embody the dedication that you don't see anymore in uh, a number of St. Martins and they were absolutely outstanding mullet workers. And Mullet Bay produced some outstanding and dedicated and in the area that I, I worked, uh, Vernon Jacobs as an example, I think I mentioned his name uh, in the beginning, as reservation manager, without the technologies we enjoyed, was able to handle reservations from owners, from groups in a very efficient and, and, and dedicated manner. Um, and, and so there's a number of that with the assistant of Carla and, and Ralph there, when I do my memoirs will assist me, but I think these people deserve a credit in terms of what they did in those days. I see well, we, shaking his head. That yes. we, we would like to thank you so much, sir. Um, and thank you for that heartfelt closing as well. Um, you can indeed share a wealth of information and um, this conversation will have to be continued maybe into a two or three or maybe even four part series <laughs> walk through with uh, Mr. Franca um, and so to my fellow co-hosts as well thank you guys um, any final word? Well thank you <laughs> to my lovely stepfather for accepting this conflict of interest on a show that <laughs> I was at this that he usually refuses to be a part of anything I'm part of. 
So thank you for uh, going against your norms <laughs> to connect with a broader audience, uh, your experience. Yes, thank you for providing us with information on the main industry of the island, basically. Very interesting. Yeah, I thought Good. it was thank super you. fascinating and a perspective you don't get to hear often. Um, definitely a lot to, to reflect on. Um, so thanks, yes. Great, and so again, we'd like to also thank our listeners and uh, subscribers, those of you who've joined us from day one, or even if you just uh, join us today, you know, this is our eighth episode once again. Um, and so we're trucking along and moving along quite smoothly. So we hope that you guys have a great weekend. And again, thanks for tuning in. Do take care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Melee. Have some comments? You can write to us at meleesxm at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at meleesxm. See you for our next episode of Melee. And in the meantime, stay curious.